When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking about spooky places, spooky stories, scary places, scary stories. Uh, It's all um, related to our guest, J.W. Oker. He is an author. He's written fiction and nonfiction books related to spooky, scary, and the paranormal. We're going to talk about places he's been, how he's been inspired by those places like Salem and other places, Salem, Massachusetts, that is, and um, you know why he's chosen to write about what he's written about. It'll be an interesting conversation with JW in this uh, this night the tonight's episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Before we get to that, however, I want you to go to YouTube and make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's very easy to find and of course there's no fee to subscribe. It's just you just have to click on a button. Just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. The page is called JV Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. It's easy to find, a lot of great episodes there about 450 or so back episodes of beyond reality radio in addition to the fact that we stream live there if you don't have a radio station in your market carrying the program the youtube channel is the best place to find it we stream live with a great chat room some video accompanying the audio and it's just a lot of fun and it's a great way to uh, be part of the show we will be taking your phone calls later in the program if you want to join our conversation. The number, write it down, is 844-687-7669. 844-687-7669 is the toll-free number for you to call if you want to join our conversation. Again, tonight, talking with J.W. Oker. Just looking ahead quickly, Jim Davies is tomorrow night's guest. He's a professor of cognitive science, and he'll talk about his new book, Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. And then Thursday night, we've got two guests for you. In the first hour, Pam Grossman will be with us. Pam is a writer, a curator, and a teacher of magical practice and history. She'll be discussing modern witchcraft. And in the second hour of tomorrow night's program, we'll have an exorcist. We're we're going to be talking about exorcisms. Reverend Sean Whittington will talk about his experiences with ghosts, demons, and the paranormal. And just a quick look ahead, because we've got an exciting show for you Monday as well. Of course, Friday is the best of. But Monday... Uh, Lisa Morton, author and screenwriter, will look at the history of ghosts from ancient Sumeria through today. And she'll examine uh, things that relate entities uh, such as poltergeists, wraiths, and revenants. So a lot of great uh, paranormal discussion in the next few nights here on Beyond Reality Radio. We always enjoy ourselves when we get to talk about those particular topics, and I know you enjoy it as well. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in. Again, tonight we're talking with J.W. Oker about scary and spooky places and stories it's beyond reality radio hey gang it's jv here we hope you're enjoying this episode of beyond reality radio some of you are new to the program 
And some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback and even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing, and as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you, right now, to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Once on YouTube, just search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it there. Subscribe. It's all free, and it'll make you part of our global community. In addition, Beyond Reality Radio is available as a podcast. Go to your favorite podcast platform and search for Beyond Reality Radio and subscribe there as well. And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you, no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. Tonight's guest, J.W. Oker, is the award-winning author of macabre travelogues, spooky kids' books, and horror novels. His nonfiction books include The New England Grimpendium and The New York Grimpendium and Poland, The... Hollowed Haunts of Edgar Allan Poe, and A Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem. And his novels include Death in Douglas and Twelve Nights at Rotter House. J.W., welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Pleasure to have you here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. At some point, um, many people kind of come to a crossroads in their lives. You, like me, chose one that uh, led us to appreciate the more macabre, spooky, and scary things in life and around us. Others go the other direction, can't watch a horror movie, can't read a scary book. Um, what made you choose the, the, the path of the macabre? <laughs> it's a real good question. Um, I'm not quite sure, honestly. It was always kind of lingering there at some point in my head. Um, so the way I kind of explain it to people is, you know, sometimes you have a favorite color and you have no idea why it's your favorite color. You like green. You just always have liked green. And that's kind of how it goes with me in the macabre. You know, I love the feel of a 17th century graveyard, the look of a human skull. It's just the coolest object on the planet. <laughs> and it's just always kind of been with me. So, you know, horror movies and monsters and anything with, you know, historic death in it, uh, it's always kind of appealed to me. Yeah, I don't think I've got the same fascination with the skull, but I, I think I agree with you on every <laughs> other every other account. Um, I can tell you that, and maybe it's the same with you. I mean, I had a, a household where my mother, for some reason, used to love to watch horror movies, and and uh, you know, I would be curled up in a ball on the couch next to her when she was watching Dracula or one of these old black and white films. And uh, but at that point, I sort of do enjoy them, despite the fact that they scared me. So, what is it about being scared? that is actually some kind of an enjoyable form of entertainment. Yeah, I, I think it, ha it hits us on multiple levels. I mean, our average day, you know, in life is not scary, not scary in a visceral way. It's scary in probably a metaphysical way and in kind of, uh, you know, other kinds of ways. But we don't get that primal kind of, like, flashing of goosebumps and blood rushing to the ends of our fingertips um, normally. Um, and horror movies are ways to have that. They're, they're just a real kind of adrenaline jolt and... You know, just, and again, some people don't enjoy, enjoy that adrenaline jolt. Those, those are the people that don't like horror movies, and some people do, and they just kind of are waiting for that feeling. So I think it's a really that, that physical response we have to being scared that some people really like and some people don't. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I guess it's something to do with the chemicals our body releases in that flight or fight or flight reaction and the adrenaline, all those things, just like a runner gets a high from the endorphins that are released when they exercise. I don't get that same feeling when I exercise, <laughs> but I, I do get a similar feeling when I get scared from watching a good horror film. So I guess it's something, it's a, it's a reaction that our body gives us that uh, some people like, some people don't. Yeah, and it's also, I think, a little bit of a dare for ourselves because you horror movies uniquely, also horror literature, but horror stories uniquely have this ability to, you know, we don't, at some point, we might not trust the person making the story. We don't know where it's going to push us. So that uncertainty of, is this really going to damage me? Is this going to really scare me? Is this going to really kind of horrify me? That kind of like um, walking on a tightrope is also another kind of strange pleasure with horror movies, I think. Is it Does it work the way it works? Because ultimately we know if we're watching a horror film or we're reading a good Stephen King novel or whatever it happens to be and we're scared, but we know that we're actually safe. We know that we're actually uh, you know sheltered and, and, and protected in some form, and these scares are only temporary. Is that, is that what makes it okay? It makes it effective? Yeah, I think so. I think we, especially if you, you know, you watch a really disturbing horror movie or read a really disturbing book, you know, nothing in that book is appealing as far as, you know, you don't want any part of that in your life. But the fact that it's contained within covers or on the TV, on the TV screen, the movie screen, that helps us do it. Uh, I think for most of us, I think a lot of people still can't sit through a horror movie because they just cannot kind of wrap their heads around the fact that it's you know, they, they, it just intrudes into their life too much just by seeing it, I think. You know, I have been a horror fan all my life. And as I get older, um, I start to have a, have difficulty watching certain types of horror. I have trouble with gore and blood type horror now, whereas that didn't bother me before. I, I would rather sit and, and watch a psychological horror and be, um, you know, scared in that fashion versus watching some kind of axe murderer do his or her work. <laughs> right. And, and that didn't bother me before. But as I get older, it kind of changed. Does it does it bother you? Not to turn into the interviewer here, but does it bother <laughs> you, or are you just bored with it because you've seen it so often? Maybe, so you're maybe, for something else? maybe it's that, but there is a bother factor, and I think part of that is because some of the the special effects have gotten so gruesome that you know it's not quite the same as it was you know, twenty thirty years ago uh, when we watched one of those quote unquote kill scenes in one of those slasher films. It just seems to be far more realistic these days, and I guess when you start looking at something like that and you've seen something very similar on the news, it starts to bother you. Yeah, yeah. I think the older we get, we do because I think part of that is the older we get, the closer we are to our mortality. Yeah, uh, right. So seeing that stuff is a little too <laughs> it's too close to home. I know I have kids, so when I see kid endangerment in films, and on, it, it bothers me a lot more than it did right. when I was say eighteen. So I think it is. I think we're just closer to death <laughs> the older we get, and that does you know, that that kind of. Um, changes how we watch horror which is all about death yeah i think that's a good point i think if it if it gets a little too close to home then it might start being a little bit difficult to handle tell me what you think i mean if if, if someone just walks up into you to you and says jw what's scary to you how would you answer that question yeah it's a good question because I, I actually don't get scared usually it happens every once in a while but horror movies usually don't scare me um mostly the existential stuff scares me uh Actual death, um, not being able to prepare for my to you know provide for my family, the like the real mon- almost mundane but everyday things. That is what that's what keeps me up at night. That's what you know gives me that weird feeling in the pit of my stomach, like I'm just doing things wrong, and being scared. You know, facing other things like you know, monsters and movies is almost a relief from that, and in, in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, it is that real life 
horror stuff that um, that can really scare you to the core. And 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 not to get too serious for a moment, but um, recently I've watched a few documentaries related to the Holocaust, and those are true horrors when you see what what happened uh, during World War II. Um, in Europe, and you, and you just—it's almost unimaginable that kind of horror, and, and putting yourself into the shoes of the people who survived that and how they lived through that. Um, I don't think anything can be more horrifying than something like that. Yeah, and even on a micro level, um, just just seeing everyday crimes—you know—you hear about a crime two towns over, and you're like, oh, and you immediately yeah. see how vulnerable you are. Whereas, again, as a kid or maybe as a college kid, hearing about a crime two weeks old—you know—two towns over was. Kind of exciting because it, it it was it was different than the everyday. But now you're like, oh man, my door is very thin. <laughs> Anybody it, can get in here, so it's terrifying. Does the same answer to apply? I mean, I asked you what was scary to you. If I were to change it and say what is spooky to you, is it the same answer? No, no, totally different. Because spooky to me, and that's a good different. I think that's a good nuance you brought up. Spooky to me is an aesthetic. It is something um, almost pleasurable. Uh, again, it's that you know. The way we look at a, you know, an old abandoned haunted house, right? Some people look at it as just a pile of junk. <laughs> and some of us really like the look of it, the feel of it. We like that kind of Adam's family, you know, look of a house. So that's spooky. And that's something I almost crave uh, in, in my life is that kind of feeling and that aesthetic and that visuals and those sounds. And so it's kind of an atmosphere. It's an environment. Spooky is, exactly what is. is what's, yep. you know, kind of a surrounding. Um, and it gives you a, a, a sense of something, I, I suppose. And does it have to be something associated with death? I think so at some level. I mean, you could call, um, you know, an episode of Scooby-Doo spooky. And it's not really associated with death. But then when you break down Scooby-Doo on some level... Those guys are awesome. <laughs> it is a death-related show. So I think at some level it's always about death when it comes to that spookiness. Well, it comes up here on this program very, very often because of our roots uh, to the television show Ghost Hunters, that mm-hmm. uh, Scooby-Doo and company were actually the very first paranormal investigators that had any, had any notoriety, and they survived today. So they must have been doing, <laughs> doing a good job. Although I think every single case they investigated turned out, turned out to be a hoax of some kind. So <laughs> whatever that says yeah. for paranormal investigation. No, I like it. I like it. It sounds like uh, they should revamp that as a reality show. Yeah, I think that would be that'd be really great, actually. Um, you know, yeah, I think I think there's there's some meat there. Um, so <laughs> you you enjoy this stuff. You you like the topic. You like the feelings. And at some point, you decided to start writing about it. When did that happen? Um, so that happened. <laughs> so I moved to New England uh, about ten, eleven, twelve years ago uh, from my home state. Uh, well, from Virginia, but I'm, I'm from Maryland, so I was from the Mid Atlantic. And I moved up here, and I had been writing about oddities for a long time on my uh, website. And um, I tried to pitch a book about oddities to uh, a publisher, and I gave them. And I, I was brand new to New England. New England was like fascinating for me. I was going to explore, explore all over it, all the all the states. And I pitched two types of books. I pitched a book about literary sites in New England because the place is crawling with literary sites. And then I pitched a book about desolated sites. And the publisher said, that, you know, this publisher of books said. Nobody cares about literary sites. This death <laughs> idea is really cool. Why don't you do that one? So th- that kind of focused me to really kind of examine, you know, creepy, spooky, death-related sites and search them out and face them one-on-one. And uh, that really is what started me writing spooky stuff, even though I'd written a little bit of spooky stuff on my website. But that really kind of opened up that vein. So it wasn't just a theme of my writing. It became almost almost all of my writing. I would say New England is a bit of an epicenter for spooky, wouldn't you think? 
Totally, totally, 100% agree with you on that. What makes it so? Is it the is it the older architecture? Is it the history? Is it all of the above? Yeah, so I, I explain it in three ways. So first, uh, first to have anything spooky, anything death-related, you need two things. You need time and you need people. And if you have a lot of time and a lot of people, that equals a lot of death. And that gives you a lot of spooky stuff. And New England, obviously, is the oldest part of the United States. Obviously, if you talk about it as a landmass, it's not the oldest, no, oldest populated part. But as a country, as the United States, New England's the oldest uh, oldest spot. And on top of that, it's one of our most populous as well, Boston being an epicenter of people. So we've had, you know, 450 years of people dying in New England, and that kind of builds up. And then on top of that, New England was populated basically by Puritans. And Puritans had some really macabre ideas. I mean, they were, they, you know, obviously they believed in God and they believed in that kind of stuff, but they also believed in the opposite. So devils and monsters and demons and creatures. And here they were, you know, a an ocean away from their home, surrounded by dark woods in the cold, uh, thinking that every supernatural monster was after them. And that was the roots of New England. So that's kind of always percolated there and kind of, you know, been passed down from generations. So I think those three things, time, people, and Puritans, are why New England kind of has that unique kind of spooky feel. When you write spooky stories, you write both fiction and you write nonfiction. Uh, Isn't that right, J.W.? Yeah, totally true. Which do you prefer to write, or don't you have a preference? I don't at this point. They both have such like um, pros and cons, I think, that they eventually balance each other out. But they're both their own unique thing, for sure. And uh, for fiction, you need to get inspiration. Does the nonfiction uh, give you inspiration to write uh, fictional accounts or fiction? Oh, yeah, certainly. I think in all of my fiction, there's some elements in there that, that you can pull out and see from my nonfiction, whether it's a site I've been to or some strange oddity I've written about. Uh, they, def- they definitely cross over. Probably should, <laughs> they probably should cross over a lot more because I've seen so much cool stuff in my like, nonfiction travels. Um, but, yeah, they do definitely have a complete connection to each other. What's the, um, what, what's the satisfaction of, of writing uh, a, a fictional account of something spooky? Do you get a sense, do you get that same adrenaline rush as somebody who's watching a horror movie or reading one of your stories that might be scared from it? When, when I write it? Yeah, when you, as you're writing it, as you're coming up with the story itself. No, I don't think so. It's a lot more mundane, and <laughs> it's not as magical as that. It's a lot more like um, laying bricks is kind of how I describe it. I'm trying to imagine how to like give that feeling to somebody, while at the same time, you know, you know, operating on it and moving it around and being objective. So I don't get the, the thrill of the read during the writing at all, no, for sure. Now, a couple of your nonfiction books, titles include the New England Grimpendium, the New York Grimpendium. I'm not sure I'm familiar with the word Grimpendium. What does that mean? Yeah, that's because I made it up. <laughs> so that, would a real word. that would explain uh, it. Which, which, by the way, is a bad thing to do for a book title is to make up words in it because people never search for it in that case. But, but what I did was, because I couldn't really come up with a, a, a way to sum up all the different sites that were in those books uh, in a way that made sense. They weren't really paranormal sites. Uh, they weren't really um, any kind of like category. But what they were were all death-related. So what I did was just put together the word grim and the word compendium to uh, come up with that kind of descriptor. Okay. But again, it's probably a bad call in the end because nobody, because it's not a real word. Nobody ever searches for the word grimpendium. Well, it certainly made me curious. Let's talk about some of the places that you uh, point out in those books. First, let's talk about New York. Now, is that just New York City or is it all of the state? Oh, the whole state. I drove about 9,000 miles across oh, wow. that state for wow. that book. Okay, well, I'm in Cooperstown, New York. Anything near me that ended up in the book? 
Yeah, I think the um, the uh, what's that giant in in the uh, American the, Farm Museum? The Cardiff, um, the Cardiff giant. Yes, the Cardiff giant. That guy definitely ended up because I have a whole section on monsters in the in the both Grapindiums, and you, the Cardiff giant fell into my giant category. That's I, a really cool artifact. By I the way. love that artifact. Do you remember the story well enough to tell our folks? Yeah, so basically, and I don't remember names and dates, um, but the basic story is two guys, two friends, got into an argument about whether giants existed. Right? There's some verses in the Bible that talk about giants. So they get into a very biblical argument over whether giants existed or not. And the guy who didn't believe decided to play a trick on the guy who did believe in giants. So he went off and paid a sculptor to sculpt a basically a fossilized giant. This thing is like, I can't remember, like 10 feet long, 11, 12 feet long, and then buried it on the guy's property and then pretended to find it. And the, guy got, and, and the guy who was playing the trick on got really excited, saying, look, look, proof of giants. We have proof of giants right here. And then eventually <laughs> the guy was like, just kidding. I had that carved. It's not a real, real fossilized giant. It's just a statue. Um, and then um, I think P.T. Barnum tried to buy it. He made his own Cardiff Giants, which I think is up in – I've seen that thing up in uh, – I believe it's in Michigan in, the, in, a gay, in an arcade. Uh, but that's it. And now it's on display in that farm museum just sitting out there for anybody to go up and see it anytime they want. Yeah, and I think before the hoax was revealed, I think it the, the, it ended up touring, or I know they set up a display on the property that it was found at, and people traveled from all over the country to get a glimpse of this uh, petrified man, petrified oh, giant. You're right. It was, a, it was a very successful hoax. It was huge in the papers. People talked about it. Um, I think the people that finally got close to it could, could tell, yeah. <laughs> but it was it's really a, really a good kind of ploy. Yeah, well, you, who would go... Who would go through the trouble of sculpting something giant and burying it for somebody to find? It, that seems uh, far-fetched. It's so true. Um, and that's, the, that's the, uh, the first thing you see when you go into the Farmer's Museum, before you even buy a ticket, uh, in Cooperstown, New York, this giant. And it's, it's, it's laying on its back. It looks like it you know, was laid to rest. Um, and it's laying on its back right there with a little white picket fence around it. You can get very, very close to it. In fact, you could probably touch it. And uh, it's the first thing you see. It's a pretty impressive sight. A lot of this connects directly, um, or maybe even indirectly, JW, to the paranormal. Yeah, certainly. I think um, the paranormal is another outgrowth of, you know, death. You know, us looking for something beyond what we're kind of the physical, the physical level, I think. It it certainly does. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations on the show about, um, you know, why things like ghosts and spirits and even demonic entity attracts so much attention when we have conversations on the program. And we also talk about things like Bigfoot and aliens, and they don't elicit the same kind of emotional response. And I think the reason you just stated is the reason why that's so, uh, is that, you know, when we talk about ghosts, we're talking about what we would... Uh, believe is a connection between life and death, or maybe it is life after death. And that makes it very, very real and very, very personal. Yeah, I know. I think you're dead right about that. Something about, you know, any any kind of, even though ghosts are traditionally spooky things or scary things, um, any kind of connection to something beyond, you know, our last chapters <laughs> gives us yeah. kind of a hope. So no matter how scary it is, it's still, it's still kind of hopeful. Yeah, the um, you said I was dead right. I, mean, I don't know if you meant that pun, but it was good either, either way. Um, well, let's go back to the uh, the New York Grimpendium, or maybe let's go to the New England one. What do you say is like the uh, the spookiest or uh, scariest, or however you want to d- define it, uh, place in New England? Scariest place in New England? That's a really good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Um, I think broadly, if I had to pick one, it would have to be... Uh, Salem, Massachusetts. I am a little biased toward that, but I think it might have to be Salem. 
I was going to save our conversation for Salem until later in the dis- in in the, our discussion, but since you brought it up, let's talk about it a little bit. What makes Salem so spooky? I think it's a few things. I think the the I, I feel like I always preface my answers with that, but basically, it's that's built on a tragedy. All of its fame, all of its kind of economic place right now is completely built on a tragedy that was not just a tragedy; it was a tragedy full of monsters, you know, witches and goblins and Satan. So. It has this foundation that's very unlike most American cities. And then on top of that, it's really embraced it. So now it's, you know, the capital of Halloween. You can go wear costumes down there. There's uh, all kinds, you know, there's witches on their lampposts, you know, on the street signs. So there's this modern level of, you know, scary, spooky, creepy. And then it's built on a real scary, spooky, creepy kind of event in its past. So I think both those things kind of merge into it. it it's kind of whole um, reputation. Yeah, I'm going to preface all my remarks here by saying that I absolutely love Salem, Massachusetts. I've been there several times. It's a great little community, great little mm-hmm. town, and its history makes it very, very um, intriguing, uh, to say the least. Um, but you're right about the fact that for a very long time, Salem wanted to forget or maybe just disavow or bury its past. And it was only, I don't know, maybe the last 20, 30 years that it started to recognize that it's not something that should be ignored. It should be talked about. It should be learned from. And it's uh, since that point, it's become a mecca for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, specifically during the Halloween season. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was also kind of a method of survival for it because it had pretty much lost every industry it's ever had in the history of the city. And the city goes back, you know, to the uh, early, you know, 1630s. And every every piece, every industry it's ever had just kind of went went away for various reasons. And really, all it had left at, at one point in its life was tourism. And the best way to pull people in, you know, was the witches. Honestly, they had other, they had a lot of other kind of tourist abilities, but none of those were as big a draws as the fact that you know, 19 people were hanged in the city. There wasn't Salem at one point a whaling community. It was a merchant community for merchant, sure. It yeah. was um, it. it was the city that first, you know, first mapped out all the routes to, you know, Asia and the islands and brought, you know, pepper to the United States and all those kinds of things. And they say the first millionaire ever was minted in Salem because the merchant fleets were so prosperous for them. Interesting. The uh, One of the things that I've always thought was kind of uh, funny in a way is, um, you know, there was a lot of... A lot of connection to to witchcraft, and I know there are a lot of professed uh, witches in Salem now. They have stores, shops, services, whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. and it's all built on this story of the of the Salem witch trials. Which, if we look at history and we understand what really happened there, none of those people were really witches. Exactly, that's one of the things that and I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm a, I'm in love with Salem as a city. I I love it because it's unique. It has everything you want there. It's the people are great. It's just a great city. But it does have this conflict when it comes to the word witch um, and how it defines witches and what are witches. Like you said, it has religious witches who call themselves witches, who practice, uh, you know, their religion. It has these historical witches who didn't exist. You know, they were just they were victims of, um, you know, these trials. And then, of course, there's the Halloween witch, which is a more modern invention. But all those three witches are kind of circling around each other (laughs) and conflicting, and it's a really interesting situation they find themselves in, which makes the city that much more interesting. You know, another thing that's really interesting about that area, and really all of New England, is the the cemeteries. And I think you mentioned early on that you like old 18th century cemeteries. You know, in in Boston and other places in Massachusetts, there are 17th century cemeteries. And there's nothing more... 
I don't know what you call it, peaceful for sure, uh, but entrancing and actually quite informative than than walking through an old cemetery and just taking a minute to uh, you know read some of the headstones and kind of get try to get an idea of the people that once walked that area that are buried there. Yeah, I always encourage people to go to graveyards, um, especially in New England. And, and that's one of the unique things about New England is it does have 17th century graveyards. So you're looking at 400 years of history there, people who believe different things, who had different ideas about mortality. Like today, we would probably never, ever put a skull on our graveyard, on our gravestones when, we're, when we die. But back then, they, they carved skulls on everybody's gravestones. So they had like a different view of mortality. But what I always tell people is that you go to a graveyard, especially a historic one, and you get four things. You get history, just like you said. All these people were, you know, historical personages. Sometimes they were famous, sometimes they weren't. You get art. You get those kind of those engravings of the stones. You get statuaries. You get nature. A lot of um, there's a lot of park cemeteries in New England as well, and they're just beautiful parks. They're like there's animals, there's turkeys, there's, there's um, peacefulness, and you know all those things are you know great things. You have them all kind of to yourself. You, you rarely ever go to a cemetery. That's crowded. You know, usually have at least above ground, usually have it to yourself, which is a really, really cool experience. What's the old joke? Uh, why do they put a fence around a cemetery? I know everybody knows that one, right? <laughs> so we won't, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> we've got about uh, three minutes left in this segment, and I want to uh, give you an opportunity to tell me what Otis is. Otis is my website slash concept slash podcast. It stands for Odd Things I've Seen. So my whole thing is I write stories about, you know, physical places, but I don't write about them unless I've actually seen them. So I have to, you know, have had, enough, had an experience with them. So they need to be physical. I need to have a, attended them. So my books aren't full of, you know, unattached folklore or my articles online. They're always places I've seen with my own two, you know, <laughs> teary eyes. Uh, and that's what that eye is, the optics I've seen. Trying to, again, trying to be, explain exactly why my content might be a little different because it's all filtered through my perspective. Now, odd is a different um, adjective than scary or spooky. Uh, what's the difference? Yeah. Uh, it makes a better acronym, I find. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, I, my, my, my interest level is much wider than just the macabre. Um, these days, not much more wider. But anything that sticks out to me is not boring, as different from the rest of the world. That, that draws me in a second. And it, it usually is death-related because that's really different. But it can be anything. You know, there's, the way I phrase it for most people is I, I look for oddities of art, history, culture, and nature. And all those things kind of pull me to, to them. You know, putting uh, scary movies or scary books aside, uh, with these travels and these things that you've seen, have you ever been in a place that you've truly been scared to be in, um, or you've been frightened in some way, or felt actually in danger? I've never felt in danger, and I definitely have done the usual stuff, spent, spent the night in abandoned prisons and asylums and cemeteries. The only times I've ever freaked myself out are, though, are in my own house. Just because my guard's down, I'm not there trying to get an experience, I'm literally just trying to live my ordinary life, but that's when the imagination goes crazy. If my family's gone, it's just me in my own house, that's when I sleep with the lights on usually because mm. I can definitely freak myself out, you know, in the comfort of my own house. Yeah, and then you hear things, you know, rattling against the siding or rattling against the window, and you start to wonder, and you start to, you know, your mind starts to wander, and uh, yeah. all, all manner of things become possible in your head at that point. Yeah, I expect... I expect spookiness in an abandoned asylum. I do not expect spookiness in my kitchen. You know, that, I think that's what it is. I'm not prepared for it when it happens. Now, I've, I've spent a lot of time on your website today in preparation for our discussion. There's a lot of stuff there. In the minute we've got before we have to go to break here, tell people what they'd find if they went to oddthingsiveseen.com. You'll find uh, um, 
articles on thousands of oddities across the country and the world. They all have photographs. They all have um, explanations of the story of these oddities, but also my experiences with them, and also how anybody else can go see them, because I'm very big on the fact that anybody can go see what I see. There's no, like, I don't get special access to anything. It's just all out there. And within, I always say, within a tank or two of gas, you'll find these oddities. You just have to kind of drive to them or go to them. Um, but that's what I find. Lots of articles. I have podcasts as well. So all of these real-life stories about real things that I've seen personally. Um, have you ever done any of these explorations outside of the country? I have, yeah. Um, I've been to probably a dozen countries uh, doing this as well. Have you been to Paris and the catacombs? I've been to Paris, but I have not been to the catacombs. It's one of my biggest sins as an oddity hunter that I have not done the catacombs yet. It's high on my list to go see. Yeah, it's it's kind of difficult to get into now. I went, uh, you know, many years ago. I've been a couple times. Um, it's an unbelievable uh, tour, and it's talk about spooky. And you're just walking amongst, you know, m- literally millions of, of skeletons, and you know, all stacked by their bones. You know, all the skulls are in one place, all the femurs are in another place. Also, if you uh, have not subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, we'd appreciate it if you do that. Go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. Once you find it. It's called, uh, the, the channel's actually J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. Please subscribe. It's free to do there. There's no obligation or anything. And that way you'll, uh, you'll also be alerted when we have um, uh, new episodes uploaded. We stream live during the live program. Plus, there's bonus content and about 450 back episodes of the program. All right there for your free access. J.W., 12 Nights at Roddard House. It's a uh, haunted house novel. And you, um, I think you uh, chose this haunted house uh for your first adult novel? Do I, do I understand that right? <laughs> yeah, no, you're dead on right. Um, so my first novel was a middle-grade horror novel, so a horror novel for kids. That's what Death okay. and Douglas is. And I'd never written a, a novel for adults before, so I, obviously because of my inclinations, I immediately wrote a horror novel for them and just happened to be a haunted house novel. That's kind of where I went. And you've called it, let me see if I've got this right, too, you've called it a haunted house novel for people that not that into haunted house novels. What's that mean? <laughs> yeah. So as you probably well know, the haunted house genre of uh, fiction um, and nonfiction, really, honestly, is a really well-trod path. It's very beaten down. Uh, there are a lot, there's a lot of sameness in all the haunted house books just by nature of the subgenre. So um, I tried to write a haunted house novel with that in mind. So the characters in the book know every single haunted house trope. Um, they're big horror fans, big you know horror novel readers, and they know what a haunted house is supposed to do. So when they find themselves in one, um, it, it gets a little meta, I guess. But that's the idea: is that if you if you know all the tropes of a haunted house novel, you'll like this novel a lot better than um, you know than you might otherwise. Now, very very recently, um, Netflix kind of took the haunted house category by storm with a uh, a limited series called oh, was it House uh, Hill House Haunting of Hill House? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Very very popular. Um, would you consider that? Even though I know that was based on a film, and I'm not sure if there's a literary connection or not. I just don't know that much about it. Um, but is would that be considered part of the haunted house genre? Oh, totally. It's actually based on probably the best haunted house novel of all time, which is uh, Shirley Jackson's uh, The Haunting of Hill House, oh, um, right, yeah. who also lived in New England for a while. Yeah, and so that's that, probably a, a cornerstone, yeah, honestly. And that had been made into a, a film, um, I believe. Uh, I, I should, probably should have known the history before I started talking about it, but I, I did watch <laughs> the series and enjoyed it. I, I can tell you that much. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it was made in the 1960, uh, 1963. It was made by Robert Wise. That's one of the best haunted house movies of all time. It, it turns out as well. Was that called the, the Haunting? Was, a lot of fun. was that just called the Haunting, or was it? Yeah, the Haunting. Yeah, that, right. that is a great film, by the way. Um, let's talk about Edgar Allan Poe. Now, anybody who uh, writes anything horror or macabre has to have uh, or tip a hat to Edgar Allan Poe, wouldn't you say? No, I totally agree. He he kind of opened that up for us in America. Tell us about Edgar Allan Poe and his work. It just seems so dark. I mean, it's 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 genius for sure, but it's so dark and it's so, in some cases, disturbing. Yet it's so brilliant. Um, was he a one in a one one of a million, one in a kind, one of a kind? Uh, you know, what kind of talent was he? He very possibly was, and not just because of how good he was at the horror genre um, and what he did with the horror genre. Really, what really elevated him is he modernized it. So before Poe, most horror novels were or horror stories were like old ghosts wandering around old castles. It was very British. And then Poe came along and said, "That's I guess that's scary. What about <laughs> a madman with an axe? That's scarier, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a trope that we're still doing today in 2019, all because kind of Poe popularized that. So that's, that's kind of what he did to horror. He showed us how to make it kind of modern, even though he was writing in the you know mid-early uh, 19th century. But when the thing about Poe, what makes him unique, isn't just what he did with the horror genre. And the fact that this guy who wrote about death obsessions and grave robberies is something that we push on our kids <laughs> in middle school and junior high. Uh, one of the few kind of horror novelists we push at our kids. Uh, he basically influenced all of genre literature. So in addition to horror literature, he was also one of the first guys to really uh, push science fiction in America. So he sent Men to the Moon decades before Jules Verne did, decades before H.G. Wells did. He also um, had a comet apocalypse story, which is, again, another trope we're still doing in the 21st century. Uh, but his biggest contribution was he invented the detective story, which is basically 99% of all of our TV shows <laughs> and books, uh, all because of him uh, inventing the detective story. I have to admit, um, my mother had this red book that was a collection of Edgar Allan Poe works. And one night she decided to read for me um, Telltale Heart. Mm-hmm. And she read it for me, and I could that book, just that book in the bookcase, scared me from that point on. <laughs> as, yeah, as it's a, a little story kid. about you know murder and dismemberment, you know, and, and insanity. <laughs> and again, Mur- we're giving that to our kids because we think yeah, it's, it's that good. You know? Murder, dismemberment, and also the guilt associated with it, and um, the whole thing just disturbed me from uh, you know start to finish. And uh, like I said, I would see that red book in the uh, in the uh, bookcase, and it may as well have been dripping blood because that's how much it frightened me. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was he was amazing with his words, and his words are really poetry. I mean, if you if you kind of disassociate from the, the the creepiness of what he was writing, his ability to describe and the words he used was really you know kind of unparalleled. Um, I have a, a good friend, uh, actor Jeffrey Combs, who was in oh, film, yeah. films like Re- yeah, films like Reanimator and, and many many others. Um, he does this one man show. Uh, called Nevermore, and he does it very infrequently now, but um, I happened to catch it a couple of Halloweens ago, and uh, he just basically stands on stage, assumes the uh, character of Edgar Allan Poe, and talks about his life. Uh, there's more to it than that. There's a storyline behind it about his his uh, love interest, et cetera, and, uh, but it's, it's a brilliant performance. Um, he had been trying to get it made into a film of some kind, and it just never took off. Um, but if you ever get to the, the chance to see Jeffrey Combs perform Nevermore, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, and I've been trying to. I actually interviewed him. Uh, he was kind enough to let me interview him for my Poland book. 
And since then, we've been kept in touch. And I've always been trying. He, he just performed it in Sleepy Hollow, I think, this October. And oh, I just did couldn't he? get down there. But yeah, I've heard amazing things about it. Oh, wow. So you knew all about it. Yeah, it's a fantastic. He does a great, great job with it. Um, was was Poe, I mean, I know Poe had uh, some substance abuse issues. Uh, I think he was an opium addict, um, had some other things going on in his life. But what made him so macabre? Is that just where his mind was? Uh, it's interesting. I think I actually think that's what sold is why he was macabre. If you take his, all of his all of his uh, his entire kind of bibliography, which isn't very big, it's it's relatively small. I mean, he only lived forty years. Um, if you divide it up, it's probably equally horror, equally comedy, and then equally uh-huh. kind of nonfiction and science. So he actually had a much wider kind of uh, interest. It's just what he was great at, and what really resonated with people back then and today is the horror. That was just that was just beyond anything. You know, the rest of his stuff is his humor isn't really that good. It's kind of cheesy. Um, his nonfiction is, is is strong, but not as inspiring as his horror fiction. So it's, it's less less really um, a characteristic characteristic of Poe, and more a characteristic of us that that we all love his, his horror so much. What's your favorite Poe work? I'm a big so it sounds cliche, but I'm a big fan of the Raven. That's the that's the work that really introduced me to Poe. Um, it was mind boggling. I remember reading it uh, in in school, and it it striking me so much that I had to memorize the poem. And I wasn't a guy that went around memorizing poetry. It just wasn't my thing. But this poem was so kind of staggering to me that I needed to be a part of me, you know, inside of my brain cells. So I spent you know days <laughs> memorizing that giant poem. And after that, it was just kind of that obsession with Poe stuck with me uh, all my life. Um, obviously, Edgar Allan Poe is going to be an influence, but uh, there must be other authors and writers that have influenced your work. Who would they be? I am a huge fan of Ray Bradbury. Um, his work, especially, he's often thought of as a science fiction writer, but his spooky work is amazing. Probably his best work, I think, is his, is his creepy work. The Something Wicked This Way Comes, uh, The Halloween Tree, um, the October people, all, or the October country, all of that stuff is hugely kind of um, a big influence on me. You know, I'd asked my producer, uh, Orion and Slick Eddie, yesterday, JW, when we were getting ready to have you on the program, if it was okay to have two people on the same program with initials that start with J. You're JW, I'm JV. Or does the universe explode when something like this happens? So far, I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah, no, we've only, we've almost accidentally called each other our own names. I think once or twice, but otherwise, doing pretty good. <laughs> All right, let's go to our listener line quickly. This is Petey Paul from New Orleans. I love, I love when we get calls from New Orleans. Welcome to the show, Petey Paul. Hey, how you doing, uh, Mr. Johnson? Great, hey, thank you, thank you very much. I'm doing well. Hey, um, I had no choice but to try and call in. I'm like, I got to tell somebody this story. I've told locals this story, but. I'm a personality on the radio as well, and I know how large platforms is and how I can reach people, and people could be like, wow. But I have a story. Okay. It was about a week. It was about a week, maybe a week and a half, right after Hurricane Katrina when I came back in town. Because me and my family, we left for Hurricane Katrina two days prior. We came back a week to, a week later. And me and my wife, we took a ride over uptown on uh, South Genoa Street, right around a Blue plate, blue plate mayonnaise factory. And we went to go check on our grandmother's house to see if it flooded or not. And it was raining cats and dogs. And when we got to an intersection right by her grandmother's house, we were leaving. And there was an old guy, an old black guy, great, well, salt and pepper hair with a cane walking very slow. And 
he had a members only jacket on and it was raining cats and dogs. So my wife is very, very nice. She told me to let the window down and ask the man if he needed a ride. And was he okay? And it, the rain was coming in from the driver's side. So I was like, I was kind of hesitant because I didn't want to get soaking wet, but she was forceful. So I let the window down. I'm like, Hey, do you need a ride? Do you need some help? Is everything okay? He just turned with a slow turn and looked at me and didn't see a thing. So then after that, I let the window up. I'm like, okay, don't worry about the guy. She came at me again, was like, ask him again. Just look, I, I feel bad. So he started crossing the street. I let him cross the street. He got over to the sidewalk. I let my window down again. Still raining cats and dogs. I'm getting soaking wet through the window. Like, hey, sir, do you need a ride? Do you need some help? He was facing me. When I looked at him, there was a glow above his head. Not on top of his head touching the scalp, but just somewhere above his head, there was a glow. And when I looked at him again, real good, not a drop of rain was touching his body. Ooh. And the ground below him, the ground below his feet was dry. Ooh. And I looked at my wife, and I'm like, you see this? And she's like, what? She looked, and I'm like, he's glowing. She looked, and when she looked, we looked at each other, and she was like, get out of here. And when we both looked back over to him, he was gone, and that area where he was standing was soaking wet with rain, and you could see the raindrops hitting the ground. We wow. filled out. We took off. Yeah. What, what do you think that was? Did you think? Do you, I, I mean, I, you know, a couple of options come to mind. Angel, demon, uh, which of the two? I doubt if it was a demon because he was very quiet, very mm. timid. Like, he didn't say a thing. He just looked at us with a thousand-mile stare. Wow. You know, and it just, it, it, it floored me. I mean, I've never seen anything like it before. I laughed at people that thought of stuff like that before. Sure. Yeah. Like, I'll oh, get out of here, blah, blah, blah. But once I seen it firsthand, it was like, oh, my gosh. Well, you know, that's that's New Orleans for you. That, that's, you know, the, the, the air there is charged with this kind of thing. I appreciate you uh, calling in and sharing your story, Petey Paul. What do you think of that, JW? We've got about a minute. Actually, yeah, we've got about a minute here before break. Uh, mostly I'm jealous. I never get experiences like that. I want glowing guys that can't get wet in the rain to kind of come up to my car, too. I'd love to have that. <laughs> All right, Petey, Petey Paul, thanks for calling in from New Orleans. i got to let you go because we're going to have to go to break here. But I love it when our audience shares those kinds of stories with us because I'm the same way, JW. I haven't had that kind of experience, and I really want to someday. Although, you know, that's the type of thing, too. Be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> right, exactly. JW, let's go back to the phone lines again here. This is John in Florida. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Thanks for calling. Um, first of all, since no one's going to do it, I'm going to say meow. Um, second, <laughs> okay. I was, secondly, um, I was listening to a podcast about a week ago about how a Growling Poe wrote a story about a ship crashing and having to survive or uh, survived. Then about four years later, a ship crashed and a few survivors survived. Did you hear anything about that? 
JW, you know anything about a story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote about a ship wreck that uh, ended up coming uh, somewhat true? Yeah, no, excuse me. Yeah, it's totally true. Um, so he wrote the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which was a his only attempt at a novel. <laughs> I always like, caution people that it's not a very good attempt at a novel, but it's his first attempt at a novel. It's a maritime story, and it involved, um, I think at one point in the story, there was uh, a, sh- a shipwreck or some some castaways, and they resorted to cannibalism, and there's a whole story around this. And then, uh, as the caller said, it actually, I think years later, the exact same situation happened in real life that mirrored uh, everything he wrote about in uh, Gordon Pym. So it's a totally true story. If you look it up, it's all, you know, all over, like, you know, big sites, reputable sites. So he's, a, he's dead on about that. You must, uh, that must be what, what uh, you're talking about, John. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting because not many writers can write something down, and years later, boom, it happens. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a valid point. I don't think many writers are uh, able to predict or write about the future, and it, it certainly seems like Edgar Allan Poe had had uh, some something there happen, whether it was a stroke of coincidence or he actually had a vision. I'm not sure. Uh, J.W., did, did Poe have anything else that might uh, indicate that he had some... Um, way to foresee the future? <laughs> uh, he predicted the Big Bang. Does that count? <laughs> I don't know if that counts or not. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure that qualifies. <laughs> <laughs> but he really did. He wrote a book. I can't remember the name of it, but basically he outlined the principles of the Big Bang, you know, it was like 100 years before actual scientists yeah, kind before, of outlined it. So right, right. he did have some kind of like modern prescience that's, that's pretty interesting about him. That's interesting. Okay. Hey, John, thank you for the call and, and bringing that point to our attention. We do appreciate it. Um, let's see. I was going to ask you about projects you're currently working on. You must have some stuff in the works. Oh, totally. Uh, so my next book comes out next year, uh, and it's all about – it's a nonfiction book, back in the nonfiction world. It's all about cursed objects. Ooh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So it's basically, um, I, I visit a bunch, but I also try to just uh, put together a, you know, a list, not a list, but they're all, ri- they're all written about, of the most famous ones that are out there. And it was really across the world, and it was really kind of a fascinating exercise. And it should be a really kind of interesting book, because I don't, I don't see a lot of that out there. For some reason, cursed objects aren't as cool these days as, say, um, you know, haunted houses or ghosts. So it's, it's not a lot out there. So it was really a lot of fun to kind of scrape it up and find out what really kind of what cursed objects were famous, put it that way. I think I think that might be true in general, but I do know that things like cursed dolls seem to be, be very, very popular and quite frightening, to be honest with you. Yeah, you're right, and there are a few in the book as well. <laughs> um, you know, we, we often do things as parents to protect our children. You know, we don't want them getting sick, although many would say by getting sick, they help. Uh, it helps build their immune system so they don't get sick as an adult. Um, we don't want them getting scared or be feeling frightened. But some people would say that uh, getting frightened is a perfectly normal human emotion that everybody needs to experience because it helps you deal with life. What do you think? No, I'm a big fan of scaring kids. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> like jumping out, like jumping novels for kids, like jumping um, out and being okay. and, and fr- like jumping out and scaring them that way, or, or no, definitely <laughs> that way is a lot of fun, sure. <laughs> but my, uh, usually it's in my books, um, and for me, it's 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 a way. Again, it's almost like the same way that we watch horror movies in a very safe environment. Uh, you kind of you try to introduce 
kids, you try to protect them. But at the same time, you're trying to get them ready to live life on their own and to be able to deal with all the complexities of life, emotions, and other people, and, you know, tragedies and good times. And scary stories really help kids prepare for life, probably better than normal stories or non-scary stories. It just gives them a, the ability to fear these kind of, or to feel these emotions, um, again, in the safety of their bedroom, um, you know, with a flashlight on a book. I think it's, I, I personally think it's a, a very valid thing to, to introduce children to. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, in, in a way, over-shelter our kids uh, in today's society. Not that we want them in danger by any means. I don't mean that at all. Um, but it, without the uh, having some of these experiences in life, in life, they don't know how to handle these experiences or anything close as they get into adulthood. And that, that, that in itself is a bit frightening. Yeah, that and also it kind of it kind of um, constrains their wonder. If they don't see how kind of wide ranging the world is early on in life, you know, the older they get, you know, we that that sense of wonder atrophies. So we don't kind of think of the world as a massive place full of possibilities, full of everything from the scary end of the spectrum to the wonderful end of the spectrum. And we really gotta kind of teach kids that as they grow that this world is amazing and terrifying and cool and bad and everything all wrapped up in one. And that's kind of one way you do that. Have you ever done any ghost hunting? I have, yes, I have definitely done that. Any ha- have any experiences while you were doing that? No, never. Um, I'm kind of so I'm kind of the guy that most of the ghost hunts I've seen or been a part of rely heavily on technology. Um, and I personally have never really seen that connection how technology can really do anything. So I'm more of a I like to be even though I've never seen a ghost. I'm kind of more of a, a stakeout guy. I feel like the way to see something interesting or something weird or something paranormal would be to just sit uh, and wait for it. Uh, it, it, just, it just feels more kind of organic. And that's how you would, I don't know, it, it, I've never been able to find one. So I guess that's why I doubt the ele- electronic stuff. But um, I definitely want to sit in the house <laughs> alone and wait for them to come to me. Yeah, I um, I tend to agree with you. I've done a lot of ghost hunting, and I've done it um, with some very noted ghost hunters. And... Uh, Early early on when we were doing this, there was a much heavier reliance on your eyes, your ears, you know, your five senses. And uh, it seems to have shifted to this electronic gadgetry, which nobody can prove that really has any connection to helping you find a ghost. Um, you know, there's some interesting things that have happened with these devices, but I don't believe it's it's proof that that's what's happening. And I would much rather much rather use my five senses and maybe a video camera that catches audio and a little bit of video just to substantiate something I might have seen. Um, but I think I'm with you. The electronics just kind of get in the way. Yeah, it's a whole level, another level of trust you have to have. I mean, to, to believe in something really um, out of this world, really kind of outrageous under normal circumstances, you have to trust your senses. But then once you introduce electronic technology into it, you also have to trust that electronic technology. So It's just too many levels between you and the the phenomenon itself, I think. All right, let's jump back to the listener line. This is Charlie in Waynesboro, Virginia. Hey, Charlie, welcome to the program. Uh, Yes, sir. It's a a great, interesting program, and I'd like to relate one story to you. I have many stories, but this one is the one that we chose uh, to be airing. Okay. Uh, My parents lived in the northern panhandle of West Virginia, and my father worked in a steel mill. And uh, my mother was uh, at home with me, and it was late at night after he had gone to work for the night. And she was leaning up against the headboard, and she had the covers pulled up over her legs, and she was nursing me. And the lights were all out. And she said all at once she looked over to the door, and there was a big-breasted woman standing there fully clothed, 
and she was just staring at my mother. And my mother said to me, "I was that was scary because there's nobody else allowed in that house, and we didn't, never knew such a woman." But she stood there and stared at me. So she said, "I just pulled the covers up over my head and continued to nurse you, my son." And then after about three or four minutes, she actually pulled the curtains down, and the apparition was gone. But here's the main part about it. Uh, they moved away from that house, and they were telling ghost stories at, a, at another house a couple of years later. And my father was sitting there, and he said, "Hun, I, I saw that same ghost. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, I, I didn't want to relate it to you because I, I thought you might be afraid. But the point is, they both saw it at different times, wow. and, it wa- and it was there. So ghosts do exist. My mother and dad weren't drinkers or alcoholics or anything. It was a serious story. Yeah, it sounds serious. And I'm curious as to why your mother, and maybe she did, did she call out to this figure when she saw it? They're like, hey, who are no, you? What are you doing? She was just frightened to the point where she just clammed up. And uh, mm. I, I would have actually said something myself because what the heck? It's there. Yeah. So yeah. why not say something? I think my first reaction would have been, "What? who are you? What are you doing here? And then if I didn't get a reply, I think I immediately would have pulled the covers up. Um, you know, that that's interesting. And your father saw the same figure. But did you ever get a, an explanation for who it may have been in that house? No, because they ne- she never talked to him about it, and he never talked to her about it until they had left and we were telling ghost stories later on at wow. another house. Uh, and maybe a year or so later after they had both seen it. Wow, Charlie, thanks for sharing that story. And JW, I don't think there's anything more spine-tingling than the idea of a uh, an unknown figure standing in a door just staring at you silently. That in itself is, uh, is, uh, is a very, very scary proposition to me anyway. No, I agree. Like that, un- this known figure with an unknown purpose is, you know, in real, you know, whether it's a human or something else, that's definitely particularly scary. Hey, Charlie, did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, I wanted to say this. My son was a ghost hunter, and he said he went into a mausoleum and openly talked, to, hoping to raise some kind of a uh, a response. And he said he got nothing, but when he went outside and got in his car, and he and his wife, they don't have any children, they were driving home, and he said, dear, my my back is hurting. I don't understand it. When he got home, he took his shirt off, and there was a big scratch right down the back. Oh, wow. and, and the minister said, let me tell you something. If you keep doing that, one of these things is going to follow you home. Yeah, that's frightening, too. Again, thank you, Charlie. We have to let you go because we're almost out of time here. Um, thanks for sharing those stories. But, man, I've I've had several ghost hunting friends that have come home and recognized after the fact that they've had some kind of marks left on their body. You, you've, you've heard stories like that, J.W.? Oh, yeah, definitely. That, that, that's like a, another classic haunted house trope where, you know, you, you, you feel or you don't feel something physical happen to you, and then later on you're looking, you know, you take your shirt off, you know, to go to bed, and you see just like, three claw marks across your back or arm. Um, definitely a classic one. So do you believe in this stuff, ghosts, the paranormal things that you know people talk about personally? Do you believe in it? I don't believe in it, um, but I always end that with the word unfortunately, because <laughs> I would really love to believe that. And I think it just comes down to the fact, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, but it just comes down to the fact that I've never had an experience. Um, and I think that's what you need to believe is experiences, well, whether it's religion or paranormal or anything. It, it, t- it comes down to an experience. We we say 
um, that all the time. A, a, a skeptic or a non-believer is just someone who hasn't had an experience yet. And I'll tell you one other thing very, very quickly that, um, uh, you know, I've talked to many people in the, uh, because of my involvement in the paranormal, and they'll say to me, I, I don't believe in that stuff. But you know what happened to me when I was 10 years old? And then they have a story, and I'm thinking to myself, if you don't believe it, how could you even be relating the story to me? All right, let's jump back to the phones for one more call. We're going to squeeze this in quickly. This is John in Kansas City. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, good show as usual. Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I, when I was six years old, my dad moved us to a three-story Victorian mansion in Santa Barbara, California. I might have called you guys about this before. Yes, I think but you have. Place, yeah. yeah, this place was haunted to high hell. It was um, supposedly a ship captain had come home from sea unexpectedly and caught his wife on the third floor with a guy and killed them both and then Whoa. killed himself on the third floor. And uh, we, my dad was kind of warned about it, but he didn't say anybody because the landlord, I mean, the, rent, the person owned the home told me she couldn't rent it to anybody because it was so haunted. And him being a Marine and a cowboy from Wyoming, he was like, I'm afraid of it, he goes. But this house was so bad, we actually had a Franciscan monk from the old mission come in and do an exorcism on the house, and it still didn't do anything. But we would hear female blood-curdling screams in the middle of the night. And this was like a 10-bedroom house. It's a huge home. Uh, we'd all be sleeping in the same room. The place would get, like, cold, like ice on the walls. Wow. You always felt like there was somebody around. We used to play a game when we were kids. We'd get on the second-floor landing, and we'd try to touch the third floor. And I did it one time, and something seized me. Oof. An unseen force <laughs> just, like, grabbed hold of me. I was like, holy crap. I did it to my older brother, too. Of course, we stopped playing that game. Yeah. But this house, the doors would open and close. You, you, there'd be a window open one second when there wasn't a window open. You always had a creepy feeling in there. I mean, we lived there for a year where I think the ghosts got used to us, but we also thought they followed us to our next house. Oh, really? Yeah, this place had some, it had some evil in it. This wasn't, you know, like good-natured ghosts. It was like an evil thing. And my brother and I would sleep in this one room and upstairs we would hear a, a heavy, heavy pacing back and forth, like somebody with boots on was walking the floor above us. I complained to my dad about it one time, and he said, nobody ever goes up on that third floor. It was just all full of junk. You know, it was nothing. Nobody ever lived up there. Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this was the creepy, creepiest place. And it was, uh, you know, uh, I guess it had a history in the area of having all this stuff go down. Well, it certainly sounds creepy, and it sounds like uh, those are the type of memories that will stick with you forever. Uh, unfortunately, John, we're out of time. I think last time you called, too, you called at the end of the program. you got to call a little bit earlier. You can spend a little more time talking about this because it sounds like a fascinating experience. J.W., that sounds like uh, a great inspiration for a, your next book. You might want to talk to John about this. Oh, totally. I love those kind of stories. All right. Um, we just have about a minute left. Once again, let people know where they can get a hold of your books, follow your work, and keep track uh, of what you're up to. Sure. My hub for everything is oddthingsivescen.com, but you can find my books on Amazon, anywhere else they sell books. Uh, I'm around. <laughs> and I have to ask you this question, because anybody who is into horror and scary, I, I like to know, uh, what's your favorite horror movie? Can you come up with one? Oh, yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, 100%. really? Okay. Well, that's a great one. The original, 1974, Toby Hooper? The original one. One that looks like it was made by a madman. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a sad story. I can squeeze this in quickly. Um, Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface in that film, is a friend of mine. And um, I was having dinner with him just two weeks before he passed away. And he had told me at that point that he had some medical issues and, and he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to make, make his next appearance. And next thing I knew, he died of pancreatic cancer. So, um, you know, that was a real loss to anybody who's a horror film fan, especially a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
fan. Anyway, JW, great conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, and we hope to have you back on the program at some point. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I had a blast. Remember to subscribe on YouTube. Find it uh, by going to YouTube. Just look for J.V. Johnson. When you find it, subscribe. Click the notification icon. That's it for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.